Welcome to Been There, Done That, a pandemic survival podcast. In this show, we'll be talking to some real-life experts on how to get through this time filled with unexpected changes, challenges, and maybe even feelings of hopelessness. And those experts are everyday people like you and me. Turns out we may be more prepared for this moment than we realize. So let's get started and see what we can relearn. Very excited today and very honored and humbled to be able to speak to um, to a good friend, Tori, uh, who I, I have some things in common with, like very deeply, but from a very different perspective. So I've mentioned a few times um, in different ways uh, and in the welcoming episode that I live with a chronic illness. I am on chemo for life. Um, and so I am a patient. And part of the hardest part of living like that is that you constantly have to be patient, not the noun, but the act. And um, sometimes it's very easy to be the patient and just receive and let things happen to you than to be the caregiver of the patient, which has a level of helplessness and inability to do as much as we think we can that is so much more stressful. And um, the weight of that is a lot heavier um, as I too have been caregivers and family of folks um, who have struggled with cancer and who've passed from it. So Tori is one of those amazing caregiving uh, just fantastic people in our lives who help us get through it. And so Tori, thank you so much for being with us. And I want to ask initially if you could share where you are at geographically, what city, what state, and where are you located right now? Are you outside? Are you inside? What's the weather like? Let us know like what what all of those uh, are like and trying to be truthful, not so jokestery as it is April 1st, April Fool's Day, 2020. So that where are you? Um, so my name is Tori. I am a cancer mom. I am in Buffalo, New York, um, on the west side of Buffalo uh, in a very tightly knit community. Uh, I'm in my home right now in my spare bedroom slash home office slash room I keep extra stuff in um and it is it is April 1st it is uh, one of those like deceptively beautiful days where it's like blue skies and sunny and then you go outside and you realize it's still 36 degrees um so I've been like debating taking a walk all day um but yeah the the first signs of spring are here and it's a weird moment where like life is starting to emerge in that seasonal way at a moment when like there's a lot of like death and calamity in the world so it's an interesting time deceptively beautiful is a really interesting phrase um you being a cancer mom and me being a uh cancer drug uh patient um have you noticed and what are your thoughts by the way when you're in the hospital or you're in a particular doctor's office and the ceiling has those light panels where it's blue skies and clouds. And I get it. If you're staring at the ceiling, why not stare at the ultimate ceiling of the sky? But what's, what's your thoughts on when you see those? How does that relate to deceptive beauty? Yeah. So I've kind of become 
like a connoisseur or maybe just like a snob um, for like hospital interior decor over the last two years of my life. You're I, a hospital decor snob. I like this. I'm a yes. hospital decor snob. Yes. And so I'm thinking through like the three hospitals I spent most time in. And I will say the one uh, Boston Children's Hospital um, has a ceiling in one of their rooms where the different panels are like different lights. And they kind of like undulate and I don't know it's, it's like a really probably a nice thing to stare at if you're like fucked up on morphine for four days and all you can do is stare at the ceiling I'm like I can get, I like, the lights are like dynamic they move they're dynamic and so they're like like undulating and like color and they're like changing shades and and so like it's it's really captivating um but it's also like a little annoying like I see what you're trying to do here like you're trying to like <laughs> make me feel people because the rest of the room is actually um a lead encased room where they do radioactive um intravenous therapies um that make people's children so radioactive that like they can't leave and no one can come in so it's like both like this like dystopian hell but with this like really pretty ceiling that makes you feel like a little bit more okay about it it is deceptively beautiful that feels, I mean, what you just described is how I would probably like describe most of my interactions with drugs as an undergrad college student, you know, like you are, you are putting these intense toxins into your body. This is not a good idea. And yet, is that thing breathing over there? <laughs> what is that? The light is just, it's doing a dance. What is that? I mean... But you're definitely talking about something that's that's very different, and I. That different. I feel like like supporting my you know three year old, four year old through stage four cancer treatment has really prepared me for like who this kid is going to be when he experiments with the drugs when he's twenty years old. Like I feel like I've already got that nailed. Like I'm just going to like make him eat spaghetti, and I can probably name the narcotic that he's on. And I feel like that's a lot of. You know, that gives me like a, a like a foot in the door or like a head start for like parenting and adolescence that like other preschoolers' parents don't have. So Yes, I mean, uh yes, it, if you if you really consider the most broad definition of drugs and drug use, your child has started at a profoundly young age. Um and so yeah, so uh, you know, there's there's a lot there, my friend. I'm not endorsing that. Like, I'm not saying like you know, everyone should go out and recreationally use opiates. But if you have to because you're in cancer treatment, like it's it's good to know how to like support someone through that process and like know what snacks they like or like know what TV they like to watch when they're high. Like to just like or like how to deescalate them when they're having a freak out. Like it's, it's okay. It's, so. Let's yeah. just go there. Let's just go there. When, when your, your, your son, um, when your child is in the middle of these moments of having to be overwhelmed and on these drugs that do sort of create this hallucinogenic effect, yeah. what are you doing? How, how do you, you, you help them go through that? I mean, it depends. It depends on the, drug. I would say the scariest of the drugs um, is a steroid called dexamethasone um, that a lot of a lot of people, a lot of children also um, need to be on. It, it prevents swelling and inflammation. Um, and it is a 
it's also like an anti-medic, but it's a nightmare. It is, it is your kid on rage roids. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's well known, like you give this drug to kids and they are angry, they are hungry, they are hormonal, they have like these wild moods. It's, it's like, it's like trying to take care of like a hangry, pregnant, homicidal, like just emotionally fragile puppy. Like it's, it's a very complex experience. So like in those moments, it's like 90% of the time it's about like creating a safe container. So it's like, how do I make sure that I'm giving you space to like feel what you're feeling and like recognizing that that's legitimate and not like gaslight them or be like nothing's wrong here or, um, you know, to not undermine that because they are having these like extremely legitimate experiences, but to also be like, and my job here is to make sure that you are keeping your body safe. My job here is to make sure that you are um, keeping our house intact. Like at one point I came downstairs um, on his first week of dexamethasone after having a brain surgery. And oh, they also like, okay, so they gave my kid a brain surgery and they were like, now we're gonna send him home with you. And for six weeks, he needs to hold still, not run around, not bonk his head. Um, and by the way, he's jacked up on steroids. Good and luck. how old was he at this time? Four, four. <laughs> Uh-huh. Sure. So we plugged him into like Disney Plus and he just would not stop eating and he was just like shoving his face full. And at one point he had this massive meltdown and we found him like scream crying while like rage eating a carton of ice cream with a stick of beef jerky while like also tap dancing and cackling. It was like all, of, and he's basically this tiny 41 year old, like 41 pound human. <laughs> It's like, thank God you're not like 165 pounds. Like there'd be nothing I could do for any of us. Like my lamp got smashed and thrown across the house. So like all this stuff. And, and it's hilarious. Um, but it's also like terrifying. I'm like, how do I keep this person safe and move with them like through the experience? Cause I always come out of it into a place where like they can calm down and deescalate and like we can move forward with our day. And so it really is just finding, it's like throwing spaghetti at a wall and see, seeing what sticks or whatever. Um, like what is the thing that will distract them or engage them or calm them? So now to be clear, a couple yeah. of things for folks who are listening. Number one, if throughout this interview, you hear Tori and I laugh, giggle, <laughs> or talk about things in the most matter-of-fact way, this is where we know for a fact that you will all be joining us in a couple of weeks. Because this is what happens at the end of the initial freak-out moment of, of grief. It's like there's a whole other level of grief, which is like, you just go through it and you start to laugh at it and it's just the reality of life. And you talk about, okay, imagine, you know, those folks, and it might even be you, who says, yeah, you know, and, and that happened around the time that my dad died and they just keep talking about this incredible moment of loss and they don't stop and take a beat. There's no emotion. It's very matter of fact. And that is that moment for myself and you're hearing it also be in that sort of time period, I think, and how, and how we're talking about these, these moments that are really scary, um, really like un, unhinged, but also 
can be beautiful when, when the space is made for it and, and the calm and the sort of like process happens. But you are going to hear us just drop information and talk about moments that in the moment, oh, we were not feeling so calm and collected about sharing it. But on the other side of it, we can. So quick caveat on that. Second thing is that what you're describing happened to your child. P.S. also happens to adults who get through the same thing, only the impact is a little bit more, you know, difference in significance because it's not a 42 pounder, you know, it's a 200 and something pounder. Um, and instead of it being your, your parent who hopefully loves you unconditionally with all of that, it's your spouse or your sibling or your friends who are like, you know what, I'm out. Um, and so I, I remember those moments. Ooh, I remember getting a, an infusion of 300, uh, 300, 3,000 milligrams of steroids on a Saturday and not sleeping for days and not, you know, not sleeping and not knowing. Like you are, you're absolutely right. That description of a, uh, of a dog, a new puppy, right? Like all the things, the rage happened. I, I was listening to you describe this, this you know, beef jerky ice cream moment and thinking, oh yeah, oh yeah. And I, I've eaten so many Oreos in my life because the taste of steroids in your mouth is so intense that it turns out Oreo cookies are like the only thing that really sort of like taps out that taste. So you end up eating so much sugar and so much salt and so much anything that just has an incredible taste because it's the only way you can get the taste of chemicals out of your mouth. That was the conflict. I forgot. That was the thing that triggered the conflict is I cut him off and told me he couldn't have any more beef jerky because he'd eaten a half bag of beef jerky and he was already retaining so much water that we'd have to get him yes. like diuretics. And he yes. lost his mind. That makes a lot of sense. See, having an adult that can explain the experience of what's happening, like kids can't self-report in that way. It just like puts a lot of these moments into like a very rational context. So thank you. Well, so there it is, right? Like imagine your entire world, even though, you know, you're three. So like everything is about, can I do this? I can't. Can I do this? I can't. Can I do this? I can't. On top of now there's a lot of things that you see all the other kids that are like you um, doing and you can't because you're, a little different than them. You have a little different situation than them. And for me as an adult, I got so used to doing certain things, mostly having control over my body, um, exercising, feeling healthy, feeling like, oh, I think I like my body now, finally for the first time. And then massive explosion of steroids. My body isn't recognizable anymore. I can't see myself and, and even see like any remnants of, of who I thought I was. And then, yeah, you just want the thing that's going to make the thing in your mouth go away. But salt is not your friend on steroids because all it does is, like you said, make you retain water. And you can't do anything right. There's nothing that you can do right in the middle of everything in your body being turned upside down. And imagine what's happening right now on a social cultural scale. This is what people are starting to feel this week. I've been hearing tensions at home. The conflict is beginning in many homes right now because the I used to be able to control my body, my environment, my things. So choice and freedom 
and yet being in solidarity with other people, we're feeling the rub now of being in solidarity with your community and still having freedom and choice with what you do with your body. And it, for some of us where we want to hold both of those, it is a very hard rub. What do you think about that rub? That's, I'm not sure if I'm, I'm going to answer you directly, but what that brought up in my mind was the, the vantage point I have that gives so much, I see so much privilege in this social distancing and this isolation and this quarantine that we're going through. And that like my experience of doing this around COVID is like, well, I'm just locked in my house with like my family in a pantry full of food. And, and for me, it, it triggers back to when Jonah had to have um, two tandem bone marrow transplants and we had to be in the hospital for 30 days in a sanitized room. You really couldn't like, no one could really enter or leave too much. Uh, everyone wore hazmat suits basically, or like PPE. Um, and, and you're just so incredibly susceptible to germs and to the world. So it was like a similar psychological state that we're experiencing now, like broadly, but like he was hooked up to tubes and like having massive, massive side effects and unbearably sick and like doctors coming in around the clock and like, um, people like it, it was it was that like almost like that ICU experience that some people are experiencing so like I feel like I'm able to like see the whole spectrum of like quarantining at home versus being in quarantine inpatient or like in an ICU and and because I can see that whole spectrum I'm like this is so fine it's like practically luxurious because I've like lived the whole way through. Like I've seen my kid on a ventilator. I've watched his lungs get hosed out when they're full of mucus. And like, I've been through that hell. So like to make the choice to be here, I feel like I have so much freedom and so much agency and so much power that by just making this choice, I can avoid that. Whereas before I had to like consent to that extreme measure so that we could have the privilege to just go home and stay inside afterwards for a hundred days and then do the whole thing again. So I don't know if that speaks exactly to your question, but it's like the way people are framing the situation now of like, do this so you can avoid that is a complete inversion of my experiences. Like do that horrible thing so you can earn a hundred days sitting at home alone. No, I mean, I, I don't know that you answered the question directly, but I think you answered it and brought in a whole nother lens, which is that we are all experiencing living through the same moment, but our experience in this moment is uniquely different for each and every one of us, whether it is our difference in ages, our difference in economics, our difference in geographic area, our differences in our own health before this began to now. We are so uniquely having different needs and different things that we currently have access to. And yet, we're all dealing with the same 
fear and, and potential harm coming to us, but at various and different degrees. And so it's one of those situations where we are going through something together and yet not. And that feels so familiar to me because that's how I saw the last eight years of my life. I felt like I was so alone that the last eight years of going through chemo and radiation and trying to figure out what's the, what's the simple cocktail chemical that I can have in my body so that I can stay alive felt so isolating. And I believe that. I told myself that story. You are going through this alone and nobody understands and you're the only one going through this. And thankfully, I documented and took pictures every time I went through a procedure. And in this art show that I had in the fall, I had to take all those pictures and finally look at all of them. And when I looked at the pictures, it told a very different story. And the pictures told the story that there was someone sitting with me all the time. And that was my partner. That was my spouse. But in the moment, it didn't feel like she was there at all. And so right now, we're having this collective experience, and yet we're also having an individual experience at the same time. And it isn't an either or, it's an and. We are all going to remember this collectively and have our own little slice of what it felt like for us. And I'm wondering... Tori, who's there for you? Who holds space for you as you're holding space and making sure that, that this beautiful and wonderful child is able to just have the experience and still come out the other side of all the experiences? How do you take care of yourself so that you are also having uh, a safe space and time for you to go through this experience and, and, and come out the other side as well. There's a, a lot of people I have in my corner and I've gotten really good of like knowing who can offer what gift and when and keeping those lines of communication open because um, I would say there's no like individual person that is my person or could even have the capacity to be my person because the experience is so huge but there's like there there really is a, a village and I know who I can go to um I actually have one friend who I channel all of my darkest darkest humor to and I just text her all of the darkest jokes I'm thinking of when I'm in it. And it is a very small act and a very small gesture that she's able to like, just like feel that and listen to it. But it is like profoundly powerful to both be witnessed and see how those moments be witnessed and to be able to control how those moments are witnessed through humor. Um, because I think one of the worst parts of being in this position when other people are not in this position is to like have the world look at you with pity or sadness or just recognizing that like when Joan was first diagnosed worried that our identities of who we are in the world would be erased and that we would just be like seen as a reflection of people's worst fear of what could happen in their own life like you see a mom whose kid has cancer you see a three-year-old who's bald 
and connected to an IV pole and you're just like, oh shit, that is my worst fear made real in front of me. And I would experience being that, like people would see me um, that I know from life, like walking down the street and they would just start crying. Like we'd just be on a bike ride and we'd run into someone, they'd just start crying. And suddenly I'm like emotionally supporting someone through their reaction to my reality. Um, and so a lot of what I have found most supportive is like the people who allow me to control the own narrative of my experience and who like still see me for me and Jonah for Jonah, um, not enmeshed with the diagnosis, not enmeshed with the disease. Um, and I would say like that is, helps us preserve a separation um, from enmeshing with that identity of just becoming cancer. And, you know, of course I have the people who are like, have you gone to yoga? Or like, did you sleep last night? Or like, you know, the little things, but I think the, the preservation of identity is the biggest battle. And the people who could help me maintain my sense of self and maintain Jonah's sense of self on this journey have been like essential. I mean, I, I appreciate all of those things that you said. First and foremost with the first part, which is that there isn't any one person and that it, that's so hard to put that on one person, right? So folks listening, regardless of whether or not you've gone, you're going, a loved one is going through cancer, cancer treatments, or everybody in your house, as far as you know right now, is completely healthy and these are your fears and COVID-19 is the thing you're fearing. Know that much like anything else, it's hard to think that one person and one person alone can carry anything and that includes you. Right. So if you are going through these things to think that, you know what, I don't need to tell anybody. No one needs to know this. Let's not tell anybody that we have needs and let's just preserve down to the ignore. Nothing has changed in my identity. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. So know that it's not something that can be done alone. And then I really want to come back to this idea of preserving identity and the pity and the sadness. And, and I get the, the people come and see you and, and it's really about them. It's not about you. It's about them that all of a sudden there's tears and all these things. And then the unsolicited advice, have you done all these things because they help me, maybe they'll help you. And that's a really fun moment. Um, but I'm wondering how do you hold who you both were before and who you are now at the same time? I let go of who I was before. And I'm not, I don't mourn her. I don't grieve her. I mean, I, I went through a process of grieving the person I was before and the person Jonah was before this, especially for him as a child. Like I can see very clearly the ways in which he lost his innocence at a very young age and is holding medical trauma and we're navigating through that. But I think once I realized I was still a person that could experience joy and could experience love and could experience gratitude, like this, the trauma of these moments can't steal that capacity away from us. And I realized that, like, that those are things that I could generate in myself. Um, I liked the new me better. Um, I, I think that Jonah and I have both come up against things that are scarier than we could do alone. 
um, and have become a team. I think our relationship more than being like mother and child is like, okay, we're a team and we're going to do this together and it's scary and we're going to be brave and do it anyway because we have to and we're going to have each other's backs and come out on the other end of this. So, um, so yeah, there's, there's every experience I think shapes us. And in terms of COVID-19, we are not going to be the same people who come out the other end of this. Um, and I think it has to be for the better and we need to like mourn our former selves and maybe our former way of life, but there is no going back from this experience. This is one of those transformative experiences that we may not understand for a very long time how it has changed us. Um, but I, I think that's unavoidable and I'm already seeing it happen. You really like who you are now better. I was really looking forward to having more vacations. Like I, 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 I feel angry that I've had to tolerate, I think an undue amount of suffering in my life. Um, like a disproportionate amount than maybe like other people when you do that really fun failure of a comparison game. Um, and I get like mad about that, that like when I get into places of self-pity and I'm like, fuck, I got dealt like a really hard hand and this is bullshit. I don't want to have to do this anymore. And that sucks. And like, this is the way it's like aged me or like whatever. Um, but it's made me fearless. And I look at my old self and I think of how much insecurity and anxiety um, and like concern with like success and external validation I had. And like through this experience, I just like give no more fucks. And I just, I've, I've stared down the face of death and I've survived. And I feel like it's put a lot of things in perspective and it's made me a lot more fearless and, 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 and fearless in the way that like, not like I'm gonna go do scary things, but like I have massive gratitude for really little shit. I feel amazing every morning I wake up and neither Jonah nor I have a temperature. I feel amazing every night that I can tuck him into bed and know that we don't have to go to the ER. And those feel like really fucked up things to be grateful for, but like to be able to practice gratitude for those moments and not take them for granted, I think accumulate in a way that help me become a person that has just like a baseline appreciation for living that I don't know if I used to have. I used to take that for granted. Do and you I, think, do, well, what about me? <laughs> hold, <laughs> hold there for a moment. What do you think Jonah thinks? Do you think Jonah feels the same way? Do you think that Jonah will feel the same way? Do you tell Jonah things like this about their lives and how they've changed and that they are different and, and better for this experience? It's hard because Jonah was diagnosed with this disease um, a couple days after his third birthday, which was right around the time developmentally when he developed a long-term memory. So this is actually the only life he's ever known. Um, and I think I do struggle with that. Like the other, a few months ago, 
we were talking about pain and the concept of pain and how sometimes painful things happen to us. Like he has to have um, dressing changes done on his central line, which is like when they kind of tear off a bandaid and put on a new one, he has to have it done weekly. And it's really painful and really scary and really traumatic for him um, or get shots or, or anesthesia or whatever it is. And I was like, we, we thought he was going to be in remission before he relapsed. And we were like, you know, we're gonna stop doing those things, those things that are painful, um, those are going to end soon. And he was like, what do you mean you're gonna stop doing painful things to my body? Um, and that had become such a assumption of the status quo for him of just like how life is, that he's you know now four years old and painful things routinely are inflicted on him to his body. Um, and so that was, awful and I think does haunt me and will in ways like maybe permanently maybe not like shape him um but the things that I am grateful for center around his resilience and his ability to go through awful shit and then bounce back his ability to go through a 14-hour surgery and be in an ICU with like bags and tubes and oxygen tanks hanging off of him and be like wait did someone say there's a paw patrol game in like the playroom <laughs> hold on hold on did we say paw patrol I, I i gotta go somewhere can we can we get these in and out a little faster please and he like walked across a fucking hospital with like nurses dragging oxygen tanks and wheelchairs and ivs behind him because he had found this power and this tenacity to like drive him through these impossible situations because he's was three at the time and he was going to play that goddamn Paw Patrol game. And, and so like, I don't know if he would have summoned that tenacity and that power and that courage at that age otherwise, but I think he's a better person for it. You know, I think, I think you just hit on something that is going to become the unique difference in our shared experience at this time. What you've always known and only known and what you haven't, right? So when there are people who have a before and an after, and that before and after are different, it's a very different experience than, I don't know a before and after, I only know a now. Mm -hmm. And so it reminds me, right? Like if there are parents and families and, and, and individuals listening right now who are like, okay, y'all are going off about being sick and having cancer and taking chemo, but that's not my lived experience. But is your lived experience being a parent who has to talk to their children all the time about, oh, yes, another person in a black body was murdered by police? Are you a person who has to talk to their family or hear stories about, oh, there was a, a fear of, of gun violence on your campus or it did happen? Oh, okay. Like there are some things that have become, quote, normalized and all we know, right, that People are going to go into uh, Walmarts, um, festivals, churches, schools, and, and sh malls and shoot people up. Like that is a norm for some people growing up where that's all they've ever known. Much like there are people who go to the airport and they just automatically take off their shoes, get ready to be felt up and felt down and inappropriately touched and asked about things that are rude and, and nobody should be asked and they can't give really any consent. And that's normal. It's normal that you're going to cop a feel, you know, say something about my hair, misgender me, and I'm going to have to take off everything publicly and be harmed in this way because this is, this is the only thing we know. 
And so it's interesting to me to hear what's happening in this particular situation, and yet you could carbon copy it like a stencil and go in so many different places. And I'm wondering right now if you could share, do people that you interact with and share space with when you're not with Jonah, do you tell them that you're a cancer mom? How much do you share this part of your identity and Jonah's part of his identity as well? Do people know? Does everybody know? I mean, at this point. (laughs) Well, we are talking about it and it's going to be on the radio and on a podcast. So if they didn't, they might by this point, but go on. Yeah. Um, In the beginning, no. It was scary. It was traumatic. It was something I didn't want to talk about. It was something I didn't want to be part of my identity. It was something I didn't want to have people's pity. Um, It was... I didn't have a way to talk about it that wasn't traumatic or awful feeling. And as I acclimated to it, as it became normal for me, or just as I moved through the stages of grief into a place of acceptance where I'm like, this is just an aspect of my life. And I didn't feel shame around it. It just was. Um, I would find myself talking about it like really casually. And that was awkward because people would, I've never been in the military. I don't have family that's been in the military. I, I don't claim to know in any way what it's like to be in the military, but I can understand the experience of like a soldier coming home from war and like having a couple beers at a party and anecdotally telling a story that like feels very run of the mill for them or just like a normal anecdotal story and then look around the room and realize everyone's faces are like horrified. Like, oh, <laughs> oh shit, right. Mm-hmm. Oh, didn't mean to, sorry, trigger warning, didn't mean to let that one out. Um, and so I, I, I self-censored them for a really long time because I was afraid anything I talked about would fuck people up. Um, and then I would have to like, feel responsible or like clean that up or like feel like I'd be like ostracized or alien. like, like, well, don't want to hang out with the sad ass cancer mom um, and her scary ass stories about her fucked up kid. Um, you know, and- who actually wants to hang out with the cancer mom with her scary ass stories and her fucked up kid and all that are other moms who have scary ass stories and fucked up kids, you know, like it becomes a very small and particular, but like amazing badass community of people. It really is. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That's that too. And, and then you find like the humor in it. And, and at this point, it's like, I do the thing where I'm like, oh yeah, blah, 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 blah. Oh yeah, by the way, this is a story about my son who has stage four cancer and whatever, he's doing great, it's fine. And then just like continue with the story to like get to the point or get to the punchline or, or whatever it is. It's, it's a part of, you know, I would say it, it, at this point, I can talk about Bernie Sanders. I can talk about like, you know, relationship anarchy. I can talk about my kid having cancer and in different groups, all of those things might elicit different like responses. Like if I talk about Bernie Sanders to my uncle, he's gonna like freak out to the same ways that I talk about, you know, my kid with cancer to somebody else, they might freak out. So it's like, I have to live my authentic, honest life and be mindful of my audience. But at the end of the day, like this is my life and these are my experiences and it's too exhausting to 
try and self-censor or like or like filter or manage the delivery based on who's listening you know i i think what you're hitting on is something that i definitely want to transition to that i love about you during this particular time which is that if you hold on to the old self and the old normal is the only thing that you can ever be and that it was perfect. And you look at it and you know, yeah, no, it was not perfect. It was not ideal, but I, I want to hold on to it because I'm so afraid of what something else is going to look like. When you hold on to that past, whatever that past is, identity, time, home, relationship, what have you, and you hold on to it so tight, you don't want to talk about anything else because then that would maybe take the place of the thing that you were solely making room for. And so folks who were like, oh, they told me this is a, uh, an easy cancer, it caught very quickly, simple procedure, and everything will go back to normal. People don't talk about that one, or they only talk about it to like their closest friends, and then everybody has to keep it a secret, because don't worry, I'm not going to be different. I'm not going to, God forbid, be disabled. I'm not going to be sick. I'm not going to have needs from the community. I'm not going to, quote, be a burden. I am going to be my own self. And there's so much around stigma wrapped in there. There's so much about not wanting to be in community because you can help people, but you don't want to be helped. There's so much in there about capitalism and us needing to be self-sufficient and individualized in there. There's so much in there about not being okay with letting go of control that those of us who have lifelong or it wasn't a couple of months or it wasn't the year that they fucking said it was going to be, it's many years now, that's when everything sinks in and sticks to the point where you can't look away from it. You know, it's, it's the thing on the camera where you're like, oh God, okay. Well, I thought I was doing okay because it was only this part of the camera or this part of my cell phone that was cracked and not working, but now it's the whole thing. I can't avoid it anymore. And like you were saying, you go through that moment of acceptance and the no going back and the moment of, I can be okay with this and maybe this can be better and maybe this can make me better, stronger, all these different things. Then you start to talk about it to the nines because now it's empowering. Now it has something different going on. And so a couple of days ago, maybe even a week ago, you had a post online that had a list of things that then ended with there's no going back. What was that list of things? Yeah, that was... um. So like many of us in this moment with coronavirus, I'm like compulsively constantly reading the news and just reading headlines and just trying to digest every single story coming out to like wrap my head around what the hell is happening right now. And very early on in the coronavirus epidemic, maybe early on, like, you know, two weeks ago, um, maybe- three, Very early, a couple of minutes ago. Uh-huh. Somewhere between three weeks and 400 years ago. Um, that's what it's felt like. Um, <laughs> Just a small spread. Just a small spread. Um, I started noticing all of these like emergency policy actions happening that are like things that the left has been fighting for for like literally ever. Um, and I was like, oh my God, like I think we're going to see like maybe this isn't going to be disaster capitalism, or maybe it doesn't have to be disaster capitalism. Maybe this could be disaster socialism or some other 
manifestation because I was seeing that like air pollution in China was clearing out because all of the factories shut down because of their lockdown. And um, in Iran and in California, they were letting go of prisoners and uh, to prevent uh, community spread in the prison system. And um, they were putting homeless people into hotels to prevent spread and all these actions to prevent this pandemic from taking over the world are resulting in like massively progressive policy changes that were matched with also like cultural shifts of people giving a shit about grocery store workers and hospital workers and home health care providers and like the people who are in the front lines of keeping society literally functioning right now keeping us alive right now caring about elderly people, about immunocompromised people, like people who've been so invisibilized and so relegated to the um, sidelines because they don't have productive labor capacity in this economy are suddenly being centered and taken care of. And so like I made this list of like, hey, these are all the things I'm seeing happen in the last week. And like, maybe nature's trying to tell us something here. Like, maybe we can do it differently and, and that there is no going back. And Apparently that did strike a chord and it did go viral and it did offer a different lens to what we can learn in this moment. And, and it does not diminishing like the horrific state of tragedy that's occurring, not diminishing how poorly um, our, this administration is handling this, not to diminish the like shitty corrupt things that are happening um, to exploit this moment and strip away rights and do insider trading and, and take advantage of this moment. But like that, if all of these things can happen on the dime, maybe we can make them stick. And maybe we can come out of this crisis with a society that is more humane and takes care of each other a little bit better. And of course, of course, such a list and such an idea would come from you, Tori. It's the same shit that we've been talking about right now that you have gone through the same process and the same transformation as a mom of a kid with cancer. It's the same transformation that I know Jonah is going to be going through. It's the same transformation that I am still, I think, in the process of going through. And what it what it really comes down for me between pity and stigma, apocalypse and transformation, right? If the etymology of the word apocalypse is the great un unveiling of this sort of truth moment, you, everything gets unveiled and you're like, oh, that's what's really going on. It's like right now we are going through a, a social and global apocalypse of an unveiling of here's how we got here. But we're also going through these like individual apocalyptic moments of like, how did I get here? And what is my role here now that I know that all these things have been needed this entire time. We've, we need to release people from prisons. We need to transform how they even get in there. We need to change how we see ourselves as where do the borders really begin and end in the country? We, we've had to do all these things economically, you know, really addressing the gap of the divide of what we have and what we get, right? All of the things that you just mentioned are not things that need to be addressed only and strictly because we're in a state of quote emergency because different communities and different people have been in that state 
of emergency for decades, for years, and nobody came, right? And so now that everybody is going to get sick, everybody's going to have these different impacts. Now we all need to be paying attention. But when it was just you, when it was just Jonah, when it was just me, when it was just people with HIV and AIDS, when it was just people in detention camps, you know, that, that was different because that's, that's the proximity issue. And so guess what stigma means? Stigma means a mark of shame or discredit. Guess what pity means? Pity is when people feel sorrow or compassion because you see suffering in others. So all these things are happening in combination right now. We don't want pity because we don't want people to see our suffering and to have compassion because we don't want to be suffering, period. And we don't want the stigma because we don't want this to mark or brand us in a way that will discredit us. But the etymology of the word stigma is to tattoo. And I don't know about you, Tori, but... When I had radiation, they tattooed certain parts of, of my head so that they would know exactly where the laser should go. And I'm heavily tattooed all over my body, willfully with consent, with designs and ideas that I wanted to stain or remember on my body. I don't keep a journal. My body is my journal. Whether it's the tattoos that I, I asked for or the birthmarks that I was born with or the scars of the different surgeries and the different moments. So I wear these stigma markers with pride and I love showing off my tattoos. They're not, but like you, there are times when I don't because I don't want the discredit by the community and the pity. But right now, our planet, our bodies, our neighbors, our families are getting marked with this moment. And, you know, there is no going back also in all the beautiful ways that you were mentioning about like coming out of this stronger and, and better in so many different moments. I want to ask you in the darkest of early times, because you and I are maybe in like an AP class of shit shows. And so everyone else is in a remedial shit show class potentially or the majority. Yeah. They're in, they're, they're in, the majority of the world, I think, right now is in remedial shit show. And so as we are advanced and maybe needing to come tutor folks in this moment, what's your advice that you can remember from the early days and months of this time being a, a cancer mom and, and, a, and really a support provider for Jonah, but also for yourself? What can people do right now or think about right now? that helped you get into the AP class? Yeah. Okay, so for one, you just like blew my mind schooling me on etymology. I had no idea the root of all those words. So I just wanna thank you for that. Um, for me, for Shit Show 101, the first thing that marked me was the phrase, so far, so far, um, kind of like in opposition to like, so far, so good. Um, and in those first days, I felt like these bombs of information were getting dropped on us and every bomb was like shattering. So like first they're like, there's something wrong with Jonah, boom. Two, it's cancer, boom. But we think it's lymphoma that has a 90% outcome, boom. Nope, it's neuroblastoma and no one was talking statistics. 
And like, actually it's stage four, actually it's, actually it's that. And so it made me paralyzed of like, well, if this is what you're telling me today, what are you going to tell me tomorrow? Like, is, is what's happening right now a predictor of what is to come? Or if we have a good day, is, does this mean that it's all going to be okay? And early on, um, I think both like a therapist and a nurse told me that phrase, like, so far, so far, like, you accept the information for the truth that it is, and you do not attach an outcome for the future based on that information. Because at least in the world of cancer, um, and I think in general of disease, like, there are some things that are in your control to influence outcomes. Um, but at the end of the day, you don't know how the story's going to go. And to try and project too far down the road is not going to serve you. Um, and so that I think in the 101 was like, sometimes you just take it a day at a time. Sometimes you take it an hour at a time. Sometimes you take it a minute at a time. And you just try and get to that survive that day, that hour, that minute, and know that what is happening in that moment is not indicative necessarily of what is yet to come for better or for worse. And I see a lot of data right now, like modeling, like 100,000 people are going to die, 2,000 people are going to die, 5 million people are going to die. And it's very easy to take data and make it sound like fate or an inevitability. And it is not. And there are so many variables inside of and outside of our control um, that can and will change those outcomes. And it's our responsibility to like control the variables that we can by like staying at home and social distancing and um, donating masks, organizing, do what we can to influence the outcome, but recognize we can't control the outcome. And there's no point in like committing to this going a certain way and worrying about that in the moment. <sighs> you know, I'm, I'm listening to you and, um, and I'm thinking back to how the hell did we get here? Oh. And I blame TiVo. Hold, stay with me, stay with me. So a few years ago, a device came out called TiVo. You added it to your television and it allowed you to record a television show and automatically take out the commercials. Zap, no more commercials. TiVo later became DVR that then all these cable networks and whatnot were able to have. And all of them are about avoiding and being able to avoid the thing that you don't want so that you can strictly have the thing that you only want. And why would you want to avoid commercials? Why would you want something to avoid? It's sort of our cultural game. You take this pill to avoid this pain. 
You, you, suburbs like invented exclusively to avoid exactly everything. exactly here's a whole nother carbon every house is the same community for you to live in so that you could avoid these quote-unquote people that are not quote like you right like exactly right like we are built on avoidance oh you don't like what's happening here just go over there so we have this thing where we love to go away from things than to go towards things. And what you're talking about is maybe considering this very simple possible truth. We are not in control of what happens in this story that we are characters in. Our role is to be characters in this story and to maybe every once in a while give a little shout out to the writers and say, is it possible that you could maybe do this to my character? But to just, yes, but to just be the character. Because when we read these stories of 800, 1,000, a million, whatever, and these projections, like you said, they seem like a fate. And if we believe all the foreshadowing that's negative, that ends with us suffering as fate, and that we have no way of changing that story, that there's no way to intervene, and that it is already set in stone, then why bother? Why bother fill in the blank? Why bother filling in anything? Because it's already faded. And it's so much harder. I've, I've been really stepping into learning this year, this year. Do you know how hard it is to do nothing? I mean, absolutely nothing to not rush in to help, to not think about all the ways you could rush in to help, to just sit with what is and do nothing but let things happen. And it, and it goes completely against everything I know. You know, like if you're an activist and you believe in social change and, and you believe in the power of direct action, really do nothing? Is, is that what nonviolence is? Doing nothing so well so that it does nothing but unveil and reveal what actually needs to happen. And so I'm wondering right now, if you gave people listening one thing to do today that would really lean into not what we're trying to avoid, but what we're trying to achieve and be, what would be one thing that people listening right now could do that you know for a fact because it's something that happened in your life that would really just bring just the tiniest bit of peace right now. At the risk of this sounding so woo-woo, <laughs> um, I would say to forgive. I would say to forgive. I think I would say forgive yourself if, I don't know, you got sick and didn't know it and made contact with certain people or like felt like you had, had spread the disease. Forgive 
Forgive your partner if you were looking for emotional support and they were short-tempered and lashed out at you and didn't have anything to give because they're going through this trauma and this crisis also. Forgive your kids for bouncing off the wall and not doing their homeschool assignments because they're transitioning to a completely different way of living. I would just like forgive as much as possible and go easy and just try again tomorrow. Just keep giving yourself and the people you love all the chances. And as a disclaimer, like, you know, I think there are some people trapped in situations right now that are dangerous and are unhealthy and do need intervention, but like, for those that are in healthy situations, just forgive because we're gonna fumble our way into knowing and learning how to survive this. I don't know that that was too woo woo. I, I think it's I think it's pretty great. I think woo would be you know forgive while doing some sort of a ceremony outside with very particular rocks and leaves and spices. But I mean, even that all your shit smudge it. <laughs> I heard that like cleans viruses out of the air. Like sure, Palo Santo my house every goddamn stop doorknobs. Yeah, I'm gonna smudge. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna smudge the uh, N95 mask. I'm sure that's going to be helpful and and make it work even better. Um, but does that include the current administration? Is oh, that what's happening with the <laughs> approval ratings going up? Oh, why is that? Oh, I feel like this is the point where I'm just gonna like scream into the void. Um, no, don't forgive the administration. Don't forgive them. Uh, vote them the fuck out. And this is, and you know what? Maybe like you can do it in a compassionate way where you're like, this just isn't the job for you. And now it's time to move on. Like, I don't know. Maybe there's like more compassionate ways to do it, but like, fuck that noise. <laughs> <laughs> so forgive, but don't, don't, you know, don't throw but, everything but, out. But like, yeah. For, <laughs> forgive with like several asterisks <laughs> and, so, and work to improve the areas in which you have power and dear god go vote us into a better situation yes because we are in the process of writing this story and so we don't know how it's going to end but we could write a very particular next chapter. And that is an outcome that we can change. That is in the category of like, drink your water, take your vitamins, do your exercises, vote. Yes, in that order, please. Yeah. Uh, I'm wondering, uh, Tori, before I get uh, one last question in, um, if you wouldn't mind sharing one of those dark uh, jokes that only uh, particular people get. What's your darkest uh, cancer mom joke? That's, that's, I'm awful at thinking of, of jokes um, on the spot, uh, but I have like a couple anecdotal stories. I think this is my favorite story. It's, it's not dark, but it's happy. Can I share a happy one? Go for it. Okay, so Jonah was on 
medical marijuana. He qualified for medical marijuana because they were like, you know, he's losing weight and um, he's not eating and we want to shove a tube up his nose to like um, a G tube to like IV feed him. And I was like, no, 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 no. Like, fuck that. Like I've been to college. Just let me freshman 15. him. like, let me get him stoned. And like, I know how to do this. I can make this kid gain weight. Like I, he has my genetics. This is not going to be hard. And so I was like, just can we get him some weed? And so we got a medical marijuana. And on the first day he like took the dose and he was like, mom, we got to go scootering in the park. And so we got his little scooter and put his helmet on. He just like scooted and scooted and scooted and scooted and was like scootering for like an hour. And then he stopped and he was like pretty high at this point. He was like, I need a taco. And I was like, I don't know. Get in the car, we're going to the taco shop. And so you go to the taco shop and he like goes up to the counter and he orders like, I want a giant taco. And he was there like that, that's called a burrito. And so he ordered a burrito. And this is like a 1200 calorie burrito that was like the size of his head. And a kid that was at this point 34 pounds and had not eaten in a week. And he housed that burrito. Yes. So fast and was like dancing and eating this burrito. And he finished it and as soon as he was done he was like mom i need ice cream and i was like okay let's give it like five minutes for your <laughs> brain and your belly to like talk to each other before we dump some ice cream on top and um and he was like okay and so he's like trying to figure out how to like entertain himself for five minutes and he sees this like table full of like young adults like 20 year olds sitting in the corner and he just like gets off his stool and this like little three and a half year old at the time and marches over to this table and gets all their attention and goes, Hey, I'm Jonah. Who wants to make new friends? <laughs> and, and what did they do? What did they do? They're like, yes, we do. Who are you? And he just like saddled up and hung out with them for a while. And I was like, you are an amazing child. And I was like, yeah. Yeah, that was like one of my favorite memories is like just watching him be in the world on drugs, but just like in the world with like full confidence and just going in that moment. And I was like, all right. I mean, it's so, bad, but it's going to be really fun. Yeah. <laughs> so, so for those of you listening, you know, when's the last time you were on a scooter? When, when was the last time when was the last time you did something that made absolutely no sense except when you thought of it from the perspective of what is going to bring you absolute thrilling exciting safe joy right now and do it with the confidence of a three slash four year old who has no more f's to give who is living in the moment because that's what we got. And so far, so far. So Tori, I want you to imagine that it's 2025. You are five years older. Jonah is five years older. We are all five years older and you are at some kind of a gathering and you say out loud in your dark humor mom way, or in your let me tell you this beautiful story about living way and you finish the following sentence you know i'm really grateful for that covid-19 time 
because at least now I or we or Jonah has blank. I am really grateful for that COVID-19 time because at least we now have universal motherfucking healthcare. Is that going to be enough? No. Do you think that that is minimally what we can get out of this? I think if we can't get universal health care out of this, like, I don't want to imagine what the state of things will look like five years from now. Oops, sorry, that got so dark. Why are you sorry? Because <sighs> I'm, I'm a disaster optimist. What does that mean? Um, I don't know. I think it's because my grandparents were Holocaust survivors. So like, there's just like, when things are going really well, I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop. But when like the absolute catastrophe of like shitstorm happens, I'm like, well, there's nowhere to go but up. So like, this has to be the nowhere to go but up moment because that's the only thing that propels me to do tomorrow. This would be one of those times where others get to do for you what you so beautifully shared you do for Jonah, which is to say, I think it's okay to have those thoughts right now. I think it's all right to have those feelings right now. It makes perfect sense that you or anyone else, including myself, would be thinking about this right now. Is that fated? No. Do some people think it is? Yes. Does it have to be? Not if we don't want it to be. And where's your scooter? Do you have any jerky? And let's go get some ice cream. (laughs) Because there are bottoms in the world, but there are also very independent bottoms in our lives. And this is that moment where once again, there's the individual experience and there's the collective. And enough of our individual experiences get shared and take up all the room and become the elephant in the room, then it has to become a shared experience. It's what I learned when I came out when I was 14, that if I say it, then you might say it. And if we all say it, then enough of us are it and enough of us care about not caring about that anymore. It's not a thing anymore. I used to, when I was in college in June, coming up in a couple of months, every year, we would have a mock queer wedding. And it was a protest. It was a protest because we couldn't get married to people of the same sex in the early 90s. And people would come and laugh. People would come and hold up signs that we were going to hell. People would come to acknowledge and to be supportive. But you know, we were living into an imagined reality that we were willing to be in a simulation about and faking it until it was real. And now it's real. And that happened, you know, 
in my lifetime. And so how can we create the world, even if it's just in our homes or in our neighborhoods, in our families, the world that we want and talk about it and share it without any stigma, without worry of pity to the point where it becomes everyone's value and idea and reality so that it can become the collective one. And we get to say, oh yeah, I remember that time when we didn't have it, but barely. I think you nailed it like with, you know, bringing in the concept of radical imagination and, and the, the, like the performative ritual, like by performing this ritual that is not allowed and just like forcing it into being will force it to like snowball and actually force it into being part of our reality. And I think that's something that um, we have an opportunity to do right now because we're living in a point of rupture. We're living in a moment of rupture. Business as usual is over. The economy is grinding to a halt. Like things we are, have been forced to break the habits of how we do life. And it, and it creates both space for us to imagine and live into a new way of being just by creating different habits, by creating different routines. And if you do it for like 21 days or whatever, it's going to stick. Well, fuck, we're going to be on lockdown for like at least 10 weeks. <laughs> right. We're going to create some new habits and we can put a little intentionality into what those are going to look like. And after we come out of this, like two things. One, I think we're going to have to unlearn a lot of habits. Like it's going to be scary to hug people again. It's going to be scary to go to parties again or concerts or potlucks to, and, and it's going to, and those are things that, you know, are essential parts of humanity that I don't necessarily want to let go of, that I will have to um, lean back into. And I think in that no going back realm, because we've had such a break from our patterns of being and business as usual and the status quo and the systems that uphold that, like it's, they're going to become not natural to feel and to do and to live anymore. And I think this is that moment that we can build the world of our wildest imaginations because we've never been able and forced to take so much time away from our way of being. I want you, Tori, to experiment with me for a minute. I want you to, to clasp your hands together and bring them together. Um, and I want you to think and look at how your thumbs are. And I want you to uncross your thumbs and cross them in the other way. It feels weird, doesn't it? Until you do it all the time and it becomes the new habit and it becomes the new thing. And so if we're uncomfortable right now, maybe think about, do you want to stay uncomfortable with that? Is that a normal, a new normal that you don't want to become normalized? And what's the new thing that you have to do right now? And do you want to keep it? And if you do, hold on to it and share it and share it as much as you possibly can. Thank you for being a part of that exact process with us today. I am so looking forward to being able to keep talking to you, to keep talking about this time, to keep learning from you and be in this story with you. 
You've been listening to Been There, Done That, a pandemic survival podcast in a minute. Stay well and stay human.